and we will begin today with the, the third verse. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess <clears throat> that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, these are, are much more than lofty words. And they go even beyond amazing doctrine. But these are words that speak of you and enable us to know you better. We thank you for that. We pray that you would enable your Holy Spirit to be our teacher today, our comforter today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's where we ended two weeks ago. That was when our choir just sang the dramatic first part of the anthem, and then that, and then the anthem changed, because it spoke no more about his humiliation, but spoke of his exaltation. Two weeks ago on Palm Sunday and in looking at uh, this passage, we, we talked about how he descended to a humble place by coming to this earth, by his incarnation, by living obediently under the law. He's the lawgiver and he puts himself under the law. And that obedience took him all the way to the cross for us. And that was the ultimate humiliation of our Savior. But that descent 
was immediately followed by what it says in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Now you may say, well, wait a minute. What more could the Father give to him? Didn't he possess everything? He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. Jesus is. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. What more could the Father bestow upon him? Why does it say highly exalted him? Well, all of what I just said is true. But remember, he took on real humanity. So now the Father began his exaltation. So what does the exaltation entail? Uh, It's spoken of of here, uh, but we're going to, as I mentioned earlier, use the Westminster Shorter Catechism answer as our outline because it's not expanded on here. It's elsewhere. It's all over uh, the Scripture. But uh, in that question, it speaks of four aspects that are his exaltation. Uh, The resurrection, the ascension, uh, the session... I'll explain that later. And the final judgment. And by the way, I would contend that uh, as we, we spoke of this passage, how uh, two weeks ago, how it, the passage began with, first of all, the application of how we are to treat one another. And then it went to the doctrine Often it's the other way around. We have the doctrine and then there's the therefore and this is how we should treat one another. But it it makes sense here. But I would also contend that when it's speaking of how we are to treat one another, it is not just because of his humiliation, though that was an example for us. But remember, we said it's more than an example it is an example, but, but we can't do it if it's just an example. When we come to Christ, when we trust in him alone for our eternal life, we have a union with Christ, and then the spirit of Christ dwells in us, and that enables us to treat one another <clears throat> in a right manner. But it's not just his humiliation that causes us to, to treat one another with humility, but it's also his exaltation so that passage, again, it begins with the application. It, goes, uh, it tells us why then, and it goes through his humiliation and his exaltation. And all of those tell us this is why you should be humble before one another. So let's look at his exaltation. The first part, as we mentioned in this outline, would be the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 3 says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, last week, I toyed with the idea of uh, entitling my sermon, which was on the resurrection, of course, uh, of entitling it uh, Philippians 2, 8.5. Now, the reason I thought about that was because uh, it goes from 
his, his, him being on the cross, his death, and then straight into his exaltation, and the resurrection isn't mentioned. And so it, it, in some ways it goes in between those two verses. But it is mentioned because it speaks of his exaltation. So last week we looked into the proofs of the resurrection, so we're not going to revisit uh, that. But I, I only want to remind us of the importance of the resurrection for God's people. Now, there are many aspects of the importance for us, for our life, what it means uh, in our death and all of that. But it begins, the importance of the resurrection begins with actually whether or not we're saved. In Romans 10, verse 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, that God raised him from the dead. There it is, God raised him. That's a part of his exaltation. You will be saved. So here's the reality. It speaks of two aspects of salvation, of how do we know if, if we are, are really saved. One is confessing that Jesus is Lord. We will get to that later. That is in this passage as well. But also that he's alive. And if you, if you say, yeah, he, he's the Lord, but he's not really alive. We remember him and things like that. No, that's not it. If you say, yeah, Jesus is my Lord, but, but he wasn't really resurrected. He didn't really physically walk out of the tomb then you're not saved. Now, who would, who would say that? Well, there are those that would say, well, look, we, we're beyond believing that dead people walk out of their grave, out of their tomb. We're, we're beyond all that. But that doesn't mean we can't be followers of Jesus. And uh, we, he is alive every time I do something good. Every time I remember him, he's alive because we keep his memory alive. That's not what it means to believe in the resurrection. In fact, when we talk about it uh, theologically, we, we use these terms. We believe in the visible bodily resurrection. He's not just a memory it was visible to all those that were there, and he had a real body, still does, his glorified body. So that's the difference there. But, but if one says, you know, I don't really believe the resurrection stuff, but I'm still a follower of Jesus, so I must be a Christian, take him to this passage. It says, no, no, you're kidding yourself. So the second aspect of the exaltation of Jesus was the ascension. And just to uh, be reminded of uh, where that is in the scripture in Acts chapter 1, here's what it says, verse 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What's that? Well, that's global missions that we were talking about 
earlier. Verse 9. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. This was 40 days after he had walked out of the tomb. That's the ascension. Typically in, in uh, other years, I will preach on the ascension uh, on the Sunday that is closest to 40 days after Easter. And we will focus upon that because it's such a, a, an important doctrine to us. So last week we talked about the resurrection. This week we're talking about the, uh, his ascension into heaven. Neither of these things are natural. Both are supernatural. Neither of these things can happen if there is no God. Neither of these things can happen if Jesus is not God. But if there is a God and if Jesus is God, there is no reason either of these things could not have ha happened. In fact, here's how historic, here's how real this was. If this was in, in our day, this is what would have happened. Everyone would have pulled out their cell phones. <laughs> Don't do it, please. But everyone would have pulled out their cell phones and uh, it, some that were quicker would have done a video and others would have taken a snapshot of it and they would have been able to share that because it wouldn't, he wouldn't have been invisible. It would have been a real picture of a real person being taken up into heaven through the clouds. That's how real it was. And so what did he do? Well, before we get there, we need to remember what Jesus said about his ascension. In John 16, this was during his ministry, verse 7, he says, I, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So, Jesus tells his disciples, it's better for you for me to go away. And of course, their response is, no, it's not better. It's better for you to be here. It's better for us that you are here. It's not better for you to go away. So why would Jesus say that? Well, here are at least some of the advantages, not only for them, but for us. Before he ascended, because he had a human body, he was only in one place at a time. When he ascended and he sent his Holy Spirit, the Spirit dwells in the hearts of believers all over the world, wherever they are, whatever they are going through. That's because he went away and he sent his spirit to us. 
if he had not ascended and sent the Spirit, you know what it would be like. Everybody would be trying to get close to him, press into him. The whole, whole world would be after him to hear him teach personally, to, to be touched by him, and so on. But God had a better plan, and it's better for us. The third aspect of his exaltation, very closely related, you cannot separate uh, any of these, but especially these two, is what we in theology would call the session. Now, we don't use that term much, but you may see that somewhere uh, in uh, a theology book or, or something, but that's talking about him being at the right hand of the Father. Here's what it says in Acts 2. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. First Peter 3, Jesus Christ, verse 22. Uh, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. So God is a spirit. The Father's a spirit. So he doesn't really have a right hand. But that's describing not uh, the body of the Father, because he is a spirit, but it's, it's describing a place of authority, to be at the right hand of anyone was understood. That is the place of greatest authority, and that's where Jesus went. So we have the ascension. He is at the right hand of the Father, and so what, what does that mean? Is that, is that good for us too? Well, in Acts 7, we see another reason that the ascension and the session of Jesus should be a comfort to us. Stephen had preached a, a sermon uh, before the, the Council of Israel. He talked about their history. He had talked of, uh, about um, what they had done to the Lord. And he was being condemned by them because of what he had just spoken. He had, he had preached the gospel to them. And here's what happened in Acts 7, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, that was the sermon, they were enraged, they ground their teeth at him. But he, that's Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, this should sound familiar to you, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, because he was being crushed by these rocks. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Those two phrases, almost direct quotes of Jesus on the cross. How do you do that? Well, you do that when the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. 
But God, God showed him something else, and he gave a glimpse to Stephen so that we, too, would have a glimpse of what was going on here in, in Stephen's worst moments in this world, in this life, his worst moments. What did he see? He saw Jesus standing up for him. At the right hand of the Father, standing up for him. We'll see in a minute that, that to be seated is to be in the position of the judge. That's not what he saw. He saw him uh, in the position of a defense attorney in his greatest need. Is there any reason why we should not believe when we are in those times of greatest need that Jesus is not standing for us? Is there any reason? There isn't. That, I am convinced, is why God gave us this glimpse of what Stephen saw in those moments that enabled him to speak even like Jesus did. Jesus didn't quit being the all-compassionate, tender lover of his people when he went to heaven. He continues to do that at the right hand of God the Father. Dane Ortland said, Jesus Christ is closer to you today than he was to the sinners and sufferers he spoke with and touched in his early ministry, earthly ministry rather. Through his spirit, Christ's own heart envelops his people with an embrace nearer and tighter than any physical embrace could ever achieve. It is better that he ascended and sent his spirit to us and that he is in session at the right hand of the Father. And that brings us to the fourth aspect of the exaltation of Jesus, and that is his second coming, the final judgment. Acts 17, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He's fixed a day. It's already decided. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And here's the picture. Jesus, uh, in his ministry, gave us a picture of what it will look like on that day in Matthew 25. I'll read just a portion of it. You must read the whole thing. Uh, but in verse 31 of Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. There he is. He's sitting as the judge. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. So here's the picture. It's, it's, as it were, a courtroom with the judge sitting in the front. And he is separated 
to two sides. The one side are people who have rejected him in this life. People who have not followed him or his ways, who refused him. On the other side are those who are trusting in Christ alone for their eternal life. It is an awesome, it's a fearsome picture. It should be. But if you belong to Christ by faith, you don't need to fear him sitting as your judge because though he is the judge, he is our advocate as well. He is our defense attorney and he has already paid the price. So we don't need to fear that day. We don't need to dread that day. So in terms of application of the passage, let me just read the passage one more time. Verse 9 of Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That uh, verse 9 starts out by saying, therefore. And what it is saying is because of what just came before what I'm saying now, because of the work of Christ, because of his humiliation, and because of his exaltation, therefore, he is exalted. The word there, uh, in the original language, uses the word hyper. He is hyper-exalted. He's not just exalted. He is hyper-exalted. He is in a place by himself. That's where Jesus is. And then it speaks of the name. The name of Jesus. That is the name, but it's more than just the name Jesus. Other people had that name. Jesus had it even while he was humiliated. But the name is Jesus Christ the Lord. The Lord. No one else has that name. No one else can have it. That's a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. So what will happen? Well, there will be a day when everyone who has ever lived will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone. Some will do it despairingly, regretfully, hopelessly, but still genuinely acknowledging, yes, he is the Lord. 
and then they will go to their eternal condemnation. And the others, all who trusted in Christ alone for their eternal life, will shout, Jesus Christ is Lord, joyfully knowing that we will shout this, we will worship this Lord forever and ever. In the first century to confess Jesus as Lord meant you were denying that Caesar was Lord because he was the only one it was legal to say as Lord. In our day, it is confessing that there is nothing and there is no one that is above Jesus. That's what it means that he is Lord. Here's the point. He is Lord whether you acknowledge him or not. But he is your Lord and you are his child if you trust in him alone for your eternal life. Let's bow together. Oh, thank you, Lord, for being so gracious as to telling us there is a day appointed where everyone in this world who has ever lived will be accountable. Thank you that for those trusting Jesus, he has paid up that account. We are grateful. Help us to live that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.